Welcome to Diplomacy, the podcast for communications in mergers and acquisitions, brought to you by Corporate Diplomat. With our guests, we'll discuss how the financial, economic, political and social context can actually impact the value created by a transaction. My name is Louis de Schalemer, and I will be your host. Dwayne Branch, welcome to Diplomacy. It's a great pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you so much. Really, really glad to be here and having this conversation with you. Dwayne, you are the Global Chief of Staff, Turnaround and Restructuring Services with Deloitte. So tell me, who or what has made the person you are today? Well, that's a really interesting question. So when I reflect on the who or what, I think it's more of the the what and then many, many, many who's. There are many, many people who would have contributed to that. So a little bit about me. I'm from Barbados originally, small island in the Caribbean. And I grew up in, in the countryside of a small island. So you can imagine how small that is. So when I reflect on, you know, my experiences as a child growing up in the Caribbean in the 80s, early 90s, I think that sort of really drove my sort of uh, commitment to being part of something bigger, seeing, you know, the change in my community growing up with no inside toilet facilities, then to see the transformation of my country into example for small island developing states. I felt very strongly that I had something to offer and I wanted to contribute to helping in a small way, wherever I can across the world. And I guess restructuring and transformation is one small aspect of how I can contribute back to helping companies in distress, saving jobs. And and then when you say the who, well, Barbados is matriarchal society. Our strong Caribbean women, my mum, my grandmum, my aunts, all form the sort of core backbone of who I am today. Actually, I then reflected, and it's not just my family, but, you know, it's the school teachers, you know, the primary school teacher who pushed you almost in a terrifying and formidable way to do better. And I think a lot of people from the Caribbean, male and female, have those strong female leaders who have pushed them forward. And that's sort of who shaped me into the individual I am today and sort of why I care so much about the teams I lead and the organizations I, I sort of help. When you take that experience today into turnaround and restructuring, which is probably the most disaster situation a company can be in. So when you get into a file, into a company, you see people who try to, to survive, who try to make the best, try to get out of the negative spiral in which their business is in. How do you get started? What is your first question when you get into, into a company? What's the approach? I always start with, how can I help? And, and, and that's usually my beginning for most of my client conversations. Oftentimes, as you say, you enter into uh, insolvency or type of restructuring. People are there at the end of their sort of tether. They've been doing this on their own, often for months and months on end with no help. And they're just really looking for someone to give them some guidance and to put their shoulder to it and help them deliver. So most of my experience has been running trading insolvencies, 
be that Lehman's after it was put into administration, or my sort of most exciting and, and different one was running a fish farm in Belize for about a year and a half. And in every one of those situations, when we arrive on day one, there's always that sort of reluctance from staff and management of what what's going to happen to us. And you would think in that situation where sometimes, unfortunately, we have to let people go, there would be fear and there would be sadness, but most of the time there's relief. There's relief that something's happening, someone's taken decision and someone's here to help us either shut things down in an orderly manner so we can get the creditors back their money or help me draw a line under this situation and then move on to the next chapter. And I'm always surprised at how much support we get from staff in those trading insolvencies. It really, really in the most difficult situations, still want to do their best. And therefore, I always start with, how can I help? What is required? Because most of the times, you know, I've run an oil company and I said a fish farm. I don't know. What I do know is the fundamentals of what's a good restructuring, the process we need to follow, but the operations of that business, we need to rely on the staff. So I ask them what they need from me and build that relationship, starting with trust. And that's the same in any type of transformation and restructuring that we go in. They always start with the people and building that trust. When you talk about the people and, and the way you have to treat those people in the process, mm. so this uncertainty which you described uh, where people say, okay, finally somebody is fixing things and there is clarity, basically, that's happening. How can you deal with, with transparency in the process? Because definitely people need to know, definitely yeah. people want to know. And at the same time, they okay, you have to move fast. So do you have time to communicate? Can you share things? What can you share? How do you deal this level of transparency? Yeah. I always say to people, my life is an open book for everyone to read. And that's not always been the case, but it's certainly something I live by. And in these situations, I tend to find that your best sort of tool is that honest and transparent situation. So to the extent that I can say, I let people know exactly what I know, because they won't believe you if they feel that you're holding something back. To the extent that I can't say, whether it's commercially sensitive or actually we don't know the answer yet, which is sometimes the position. I take the position that it's better to say to people, I don't know, but I'll come back to you as soon as I find out. Because it always starts to build up that level of trust from the beginning. I prioritize sometimes to the frustration of some of my managers and partners, the people relationship. But I have found in every single situation that has really led to multiple, multiple times returns on investment from what the time I take speaking to individuals. So one example was I spent a lot of time working on this oil, I mentioned the oil refinery that I worked on, where the security and safety guy, no one really paid attention to him. And then all of a sudden, after many days of having conversation, he said to me, what are we going to do with this compulsory stock obligation? And I was like, the what, what? And it turned out the company, due to regulation, had millions and millions of crude oil like that we had to keep in, in case of an emergency war or something like that. And uh, we didn't know it was there. And therefore, it led to us having these ticket obligations that we could monetize. And it led to higher return to creditors. Because of that investment in that relationship, he volunteered that information. I mean, we might have found that out 
later on, but it was better to find out sooner rather than later so we can take the steps to secure those assets. So when you enter into turnaround or restructuring file, when do you take the decision that there is no future? Because sometimes you try to fix things so that there is a different future or a better future. Mm. And sometimes you come to the conclusion that the best way forward is to stop the activity. That's part of what business happens. Yeah. How do you align that business strategy there? We often get called by mainly the bank in these instances to do an independent business review. And that's usually our first involvement with companies in distress or stress. If they call us early enough, and that is always an issue, how early we get involved, we tend to be able to find solutions with management, with the bank, with the other creditors that can turn the situation around. In the situations that I've been usually involved in, there's been very or little notice between stakeholders becoming aware there was a problem or the extent of the problem, and then our official appointment as a receiver, administrator. And oftentimes that's sort of, you know, how it goes, you know, Sometimes Christmas trading doesn't go as according to plan. In this instance, the bank decided they needed to get their money back and therefore they pulled the plug. But my experience has always been it's very difficult to turn things around if it's too late in the game. And therefore, it's always then led to a formal appointment. One of the things that we've been trying to do in Belgium here is How do we have a situation or a system that allows people to have restructuring and true restructurings earlier on without the gaze of the court so that you can get, I guess, more chapter 11 style or UK style sort of business plans and business restructurings going through? I've still not seen enough of that. You know, there have been lots of cases in Belgium at the moment where entities go into bankruptcy where there could have been another solution that led to a higher return, but it, because of how late they got involved, because of the current legislation, doesn't let, lend itself to anything other than a fire sale. And that's never a good place to be in. So I think to sum it up, I would say early involvement with your stakeholders, especially your financial stakeholders and legal stakeholders, and you can tend to find a solution, but we get called way too late. And that's why we then get in involved in sort of a wind down and a liquidation. Who defines the success factors? The banks, the business owners, and how do you define success factors or what could be successful? Because it could be the success factor is a clean shutdown, could be yeah. a success factor. So it's not, it could be anything. So yeah. how do you determine success in a turnaround? So there's two types of approaches. So if it's sort of a turnaround, as in a stressed not distressed situation. So a company that is solid, it needs to, you know, improve margins or they have, you know, some type of transformation that they need to engage and embark on. I think that's very different to, you know, it's in distress. It, there's no future for this business. And therefore, actually, the best thing for everyone involved is an orderly wind down. I think in that situation, I tend to look at if we've taken care of employees, if we've gotten back as much as we can for the key stakeholders, and where possible, we've saved elements of that business, not necessarily the company, but the business that it can live to see another day, whether that's selling it off to someone else or so on. That's usually how I would sort of 
say we've done a successful job, depending how much returns we've got in that. And that's usually in a distress situation. When it comes to transformation, or as I said, business that's got sound fundamentals, I think that's more around how do we get that messaging? And this is your strong point here, Louis, and get that new strategy embedded into the employee so that when you're not in the room, as the person driving this, they're still thinking and saying the same thing and believing in it. And I've found that is the hardest part of transformation in in any job. To some extent, it's really easy when the chips are down, the money's running out, there's no end in sight to make a decision, make a call to say, this is how we're going to sell it. I'm sorry, this is how we're going to wind it down. And decisions happen. It's so much more difficult when there isn't that burning platform, as we like to say, or that sort of cliff edge, and you have to motivate people and get that belief more sort of organically. And that's the one that I find more exciting and more interesting, but it's also more difficult. So you're in there for much, much, much longer. In the entire process, so if we look at the company itself, the company is also embedded in a broader stakeholder pool and even further, the entire supply chain. So... When you have to manage those aspects there, how do you address and integrate the supply chain into your process? Yeah, so luckily in formal appointments, there's usually rules in terms of what people can and can't do. I remember having to argue with suppliers into a wood depot that I was running into which trees they delivered before we were appointed and therefore what we can and can't use and what we were going to pay for, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, it's all about that day one appointment, getting all the communications out to all your creditors and so on and suppliers who you rely on that will allow you to continue to trade over the next six months if are needed, if longer. It's surprising how, again, once people know the situation, you can sort of draw a line in the sand, as we like to say, and say, look, I know I owe you a ton of money. I'm going to get to that. But if you want us to continue to be able to even get like get the best chance of paying you back, you're going to have to work with me. And again, that honest conversation tends to work eight out of 10 times, nine out of 10 times. It's always the one that's like, I've been burnt too much in the past. I'm sorry, I'm walking away. And then you just have to have a plan B. But it's the one thing I've learned, and I don't know if this is something because I like people, but it all comes down to people and relationships. And you're never going to get a good outcome if you treat people as just on a transaction level because they won't necessarily give you the best deal or won't engage in in the best way possible with you. So if you treat it as a relationship that you can build, even although you know at some point it might be that we wind this company down, you've still got six months or three weeks or whatever to work with this person. Let's build the best relationship possible to get the job done. Does that fit into the 17 years G goals? Not really. Where do you put it there? <laughs> Where does that fit into the ESG approach? Is there a category be nice with people, people and partnerships, trust building? Does that fit somewhere? <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I think ESG is also one of those things that you have to build relationships and partnerships with because ultimately we need to change people's behavior, right? We need to wean ourselves off of some of the things we've become accustomed to. So plastic bags. If you think back to it, how many times we would go to the supermarket and we would be just like, 
oh my God, I need to have a plastic bag to have my stuff on. Now we take the bags for life. We bring our own bags. I go back to my country, Barbados, just two, three years ago, they banned all plastic takeaway containers for food and plastic straws. Everyone was up in arms. How the hell are we going to do this? But again, I still say there's a little bit of a cliff edge that's coming with climate change that will force us to do things. But ultimately, we're going to need to work with people and build that trust and get their buy-in as to when you're not in the room telling them you shouldn't be doing that, they're still going to do it themselves. And you see that, I, I think, little things like, even like, I don't know if you still do this, but I know longer have in my house sort of the incandescent light bulbs you know again that's like one of the things that when I grew up they were everywhere and we've moved away from that so there is something about there's always a relationship and and trust building in getting people to move on to the next stage where that's in a transformation whether that's in a receivership or administration or whether that's in things like moving away from how we treat our employees to how we deal with the fallout from environmental and social sort of impacts. But just look at the beginning of the pandemic when the fast fashion companies, you know, still were making some of their workers go into the factories and there was a large outcry. I don't know if five years ago you would have had people being as sort of up in arms about people working in sort of those conditions. But because we've had the conversation, we've made the arguments, we've built that relationship and people understand now what we're doing, that trust is there. I think you're winning over minds and hearts and that's the bit where it starts to stick. So that's why companies now immediately will respond to, hang on, I can't have a relationship with some someone or something that's anti-Semitic or you know, anti-Black or even anti-LGBTQI. Is there a way or do you structure this transformation process? So you said what you want to achieve is a change in behavior. Mm. Do you follow a certain pattern with phase one, phase two, phase three? Is that a structured process or is that in communications, I always say it's science and art. Mm. So there is some process and there is some... And lots of art. Some art. (laughs) So how do you approach this behavioral transformation? So there is, there's lots of science to this and behavioral science is a a whole sort of... um, realm at the moment with the nudge unit in number 10 and so on. Ultimately, I am a financial sort of person and I tend to approach these things mainly from the numbers to begin with. That's just my background. When we get a call, usually it's because the company needs our help in terms of saving some money or it needs new debt or something like that. And that's the lens initially from which I approach these things. So we want to quantify what's the size of the gap, what needs to be done to close that gap, whether that's new money or cost reductions or so on. And then you sort of do your assessment to see what's the art of the possible. But very quickly, you then enter into the, okay, well, how do we deliver this? And the sort of science of what transformation should be and turnaround should be goes into the art of then how do you nudge people and move them into the place they need to be and that's where the the sort of hard work begins so i look back to some of my times in the public sector in the uk where you would walk into a hospital for example in june and they'll say to you we need to find 10 million 20 million pound savings by december 
And in that situation, it's a very short and sharp sort of assessment with the clinicians, with the team to go, what's the order possible? We'll come up with a list of schemes and then we rank them, get them approved. And then we then need to go into the hospital and work with different teams to deliver this. And I remember one of them was in the women's and children's department. How do we change the midwife to birth ratio so that you can flex the number of midwives on the ward so that you can reduce your, your costs and so on? That then was where the art came in because a clinician's view might not be the same to another clinician's view. And whilst the chief midwife would say, I think we can do X ratio, some other people might not agree. The departmental manager has a say, so how do you then lobby all these people to coalesce around this idea that's what we need to do? And it all starts with the why. I know people like to say that. And how it's of benefit to them, the patient more most importantly, also to the ultimate goal, where, as I said, I came here to save money so that we can be a sustainable institution in the future. And that's where many, many conversations, saying it once, twice, three times, but also proving it, showing examples of where it worked. And slowly but surely, you win over the naysayers. Because every single organization I've been in, there's always been, we've been here before, Dwayne. You are not the first person that's come in to tell us that we can change the world and so on and so forth. So that sort of a change fatigue is a big thing that you have to deal with. And it is true. We live in a world of constant change. And, you know, in some of the public sector organizations I've worked on, this is the fourth or, or sixth transformation program they've been in. And the way I tend to do it is small wins. And we people like to say the quick wins. I'm not entirely sure they're always quick. But I think small wins to build up that trust and that relationship. I remember once I was in another public sector organization talking about the digital strategy we needed to implement, which was the CEO's like big thing. We want to be digitally enabled. They said to me, Dwayne, how can I be digitally enabled when the rain comes through the roof where I sit in the building? Well, there's no one's going to believe that unless you fix the, the small thing. So that was a quick one. I went to make sure the estates team understood. We found the money, we fixed the roof. And therefore, they believed that, okay, well, if the roof can get fixed, maybe we can get an iPad. <laughs> and those are the type of quick wins that I like to focus on. Again, taking it back to the person so that they believe in where we're going to go with this change. What we see quite often be it here in restructuring and transformation, be it in mergers and acquisitions, be it in, in overall business strategy, is that we used to have very sophisticated, highly engineered planning mm. that was taking 250 PowerPoint slides or whatever to explain step one, step two. And if this happens, so it really cascading it down to the detail, but from a business perspective. While today, the forecasting and the capability to forecast anything with safety is significantly reduced, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. While you could initially do some plans and try to make educated plans for longer term, today you don't know what's happened tomorrow. Mm. Do you see that also within management, people do get more agile, that senior management accepts that there is a trial and error process that you can go into this? Or are we still much more conservative and say, we need a plan first and then you deliver on the plan? There's something about the safety of a plan. Yeah. And most clients 
wouldn't take us seriously as a professional services firm if we didn't have a, at least an in- initial plan. And depending on the institution, that tension between waterfall versus agile is a live and sort of ferocious debate. And I tend to look at it as you do need an overarching plan to start things out to make sure that you at least think about some of the potential pitfalls and downfalls and and actually really build some resilience into what you're trying to do because oftentimes certainly people are overambitious, the optimism bias gets in there. So setting it out in a plan might help you to draw out some of those things. But from day one, we all know that plan is no longer the plan. And I used to run a portfolio office where we spent our entire days just updating those plans, as you said, just making sure that the very senior people felt they had the comfort to go in front of the parliamentary select committees or the council, whatever it was, their um, reporting bodies to say, we've got a plan. There's definitely some relevance and some it is required. But again, it comes back to you being too tied to that plan, you will fail. And you do need to be agile and you do need to be responsive to things changing. I mean, all forecasts are that they're based on assumptions. And therefore, you know, if the assumptions change, your forecast will change. doesn't mean you shouldn't do forecasts because I do think you should. But I think what I'm seeing more and more is that clients, as they, I guess, move towards the new way of doing things, where it's done in sprints and not in terms of programs that last years, that's focus on the next 12 weeks, the next eight weeks is really what we're seeing more and more. So you'll do a sprint and then you'll take a pause and go, let's redo the plan now based on what we've seen in this sprint. The cliche is what feel fast because that's when you learn. Um, And especially in the public sector, we've wasted lots of money. When I was on the public sector side, hiring consultants in, I've seen that happen where you do all this, we call it shelfware because we have all these plans produced in nice glossy booklets and they just go sit on a shelf. Where actually what we needed was people in the business to help us do the doing. And I think more and more we're seeing a move towards that type of less writing, which I like as a, now I'm back as a consultant, I hate long reports and more sort of value add, whether that's sitting with you in a negotiating room, redoing all your leasing arrangements or something like that, or it's, you know, negotiating with the banks or literally just helping you roll out something to your entire staff that will change the way you run your business. Dwayne, I think if I summarize our conversation, what is strong in in your words is the people aspect and the relationship aspect, Mm. trust. That's probably something which which you you have mentioned a couple of times. And and given as it's good. It's good. As the key of success, as the key of, of making the transformation. And uh, probably as the key of, as you said, it's so nicely, you want people to keep going when you are out of the room. Mm. I think that's, that's my great lesson out of this conversation is that you really want to make this behavioral change so that people do it by themselves and, exactly. and not that you have to. You might want to think about teaching in your future career. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I... I- in my current role as a chief of staff, a lot of that is, you know, we don't have any power. It's all about influence and nudging people in the right way. And I think the best way to do that, as I said, is to build that trust and that relationship. 
so that when you're not around, they're still doing the things that they agreed to. And hopefully you do a good enough job that the next time you, you ring, they'll pick up their phone to you right away and they'll sort of um, do it again and trust that you're going to have their best interests at heart. So that's how I tend to live my life, personally and professionally. Wonderful. Thank you, Drain, for this conversation. No problem. Great having you and talk to you soon. Cheers. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Diplomacy. Please explore our website, www.corporate-diplomat.com or our LinkedIn page. I hope you have enjoyed. Feel free to subscribe and hit the follow button. Have a great day.